And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing all right. Um, feeling very thankful because the stats we've had this year have been like... It's been one full month now, and it's been bonkers. Yeah, when you say this year, you mean from January 1st to January 30th. Yes. Yeah, it's nuts. We have over 12,000 listens for January. We've never had that in a single month. No, not even close. It's, it's absurd. The month of January has done better than any other month we've ever had. So I just wanted to say thank you listeners um thank you for listening every week thank you for downloading thank you for spreading the good word of scream scene to your friends and family thank you listen listeners i mean that's we're saying thank you for listening thank you yes um creatures of the night let us know where you found out about the show yeah talk to us on twitter on tumblr through our email at underscore scream scene on Twitter and scream scene podcast at gmail.com. We're really curious. Like, did you hear about the show on a different podcast? Did someone tweet about it? Who you follow? Was it in a Facebook group or on Reddit? Where did you hear about the show? And how do you listen to us? We want to know these things. We want to know where all of this new attention is coming from. And if you're like a new listener who did just start listening to the show in the last month, like, hello and Welcome. thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to have you here. That's a very heartwarming intro mm. to the show. But mm-hmm. what are we watching this week, Ben? This week, Sarah, I bury the living. Oh, no. Come I'm on. living. <laughs> <laughs> From 1958, directed by Albert Band. Nice. Do you know if he was ever in like a college band or a high school band? He was not, but his grandson was. With the same last name? Yes. Perfect. Love it. So I Bury the Living was an independent production from creators Albert Band and Louis A. Garfinkel. Band was born in 1924 in Paris, France, the son of Jewish-Lithuanian landscape artist Max Band. His family escaped from France in 1940, Mm. ahead of the Nazi occupation, and moved to Los Angeles with Albert Band attending Hollywood High School. He apprenticed at Warner Brothers, and in 1950, he was an assistant director on John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle. In 1951, he wrote the adaptation of The Red Badge of Courage for Huston, And in 1956, he produced and directed his first film, The Young Guns, a hybrid Western juvenile delinquency movie. That film was written by Lewis Allen Garfinkel, who was born in Seattle in 1928. From there, the two men formed a partnership, and their next project would be I Bury the Living, which would be produced by the two of them, written by Garfinkel, and directed by Band. Albert Band is the father of prolific horror movie producer Charles Band, horror movie composer Richard Band, and he is the grandfather of singer-songwriter Alex Band. So I Bury the Living stars actor Richard Boone, who was 41 years old at the time. Born in Los Angeles, he was a distant relative of famous frontiersman Daniel Boone. He attended Stanford University, but dropped out, pursuing a number of odd jobs before serving in the Navy in World War II. And after the war, he used the GI Bill to study at the Actors Studio in New York under Lee Strasberg. Cool. He debuted on Broadway in 1947 in a production of Medea with John Gilgood, and he was hired by Ilya Kazan to feed lines off-camera to actresses doing screen tests in New York, for those screen tests to then be sent back to L.A. 
Sure. So that's someone who would like be responding in the script to them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like if you're auditioning for the part of Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire and you have a scene with Stanley, like he's off camera just sort of reading Stanley's lines to you, right? Yeah. Um, so these screen tests got sent back to uh, director Lewis Milestone, who was not impressed with the actresses in these screen tests, but was impressed with Boone and <laughs> summoned him back to Hollywood for a seven-year contract with Fox. Isn't that what happened to Harrison Ford for Han Solo? Basically. <laughs> He appeared on film for Fox for only four years out of that seven-year contract, however. Um, probably the most notable film in that period is he played Pontius Pilate in The Robe, the first Cinemascope picture. Um, but he left his contract at Fox to star in the lead role of the TV drama Medic, for which he was nominated for an Emmy. However, Boone's next television series would be the role that would bring him his greatest renown, playing Paladin in the series Have Gun, Will Travel from 1957 to 1963. He would receive two more Emmy nominations during the show's run, and afterwards he would sort of retire to Hawaii and become instrumental in the decision to shoot the series Hawaii Five-0 on location in Hawaii rather than just have like stock footage establishing shots and shoot the rest of it in California. Sure. Yeah. That said, I will always remember Boone, who passed away in 1981, as the voice of Smog in the Rankin-Bass animated version of The Hobbit from 1977. Isn't it Smaug? It is Smaug, yes. <laughs> but in that particular animated adaptation, they say Smog, so. Okay. Co-starring in this film is the multi-talented Theodore Bickel, who was born to a Jewish family in Vienna, Austria in 1924. Following the German annexation of Austria in 1938, the Bickels fled to Palestine. Theodore began acting in his teens at the Habima Theater, moving to London in 1945 to study at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. He was criticized by his peers for not returning to Israel in 1947 or fighting in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, uh, but instead he focused on pursuing his acting career. Michael Redgrave recommended Bickle to Laurence Olivier, who used him in the role of Mitch in his West End version of A Streetcar Named Desire, which starred his wife Vivian Lee. Oh. Bickle began appearing on film in 1951 and moved to the U.S. in 1954. He debuted on Broadway in 1955, originating the role of Captain Von Trapp in 1959 in The Sound of Music, a role which he did not really like, so that puts him in the same category as Christopher Plummer, who played the role in the movie version. He also played... To be fair, to be fair, Christopher Plummer enjoyed, like, the dramatic parts of Sound of Music. Bickle was, like, the opposite. He didn't like the role of Captain Von Trapp because he didn't get to sing enough. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, he also played linguist Zoltan Karpathy in My Fair Lady in 1964. He did not originate the role of Tevier in Fiddler on the Roof, but from 1967 to 2010, he played the role over 2,000 times more than any other actor. Yeah, that's many a year. Yeah. That's the, a long time. The most famous actor for that role is Topol, who kind of originated the role, played it in the movie version, and like also played it on tour for many years. And Bickle was kind of always like his like understudy for the role basically but he he played it way 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 more times in 1955 he began recording folk songs and was a major part of like the folk music movement of the 1950s and 60s with pete Seeger and um bob dylan from there he became increasingly involved with progressive political causes like the civil rights movement uh, and so on in the 1990s, he played Sergei Roshenko, Worf's adoptive father, on Star Trek The Next Generation. As a political activist, he co-founded the Actors Federal Credit Union in 1962. He was the president of Actors' Equity from 1977 to 1982. Jimmy Carter appointed him to serve on the National Council for the Arts from 1977 to 1983. And he campaigned for many human rights causes over the years for, like, 
doing performances at fundraising events and so on and so forth. And he passed away in 2015 at age 91. That means he was working up till like, he was like 86. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. In a supporting role in this film, we find actor Herbert Anderson, who is best remembered today for playing the dad on the original Dennis the Menace sitcom from 1959 to 1963. The smile on your face had me thinking that it was going to be a My Three Sons moment, no. but no. The film's music is by Gerald Freed, whose oh. work we have been enjoying lately in the films of Paul Landris, and of course who at this time was mostly known for scoring the films of Stanley Kubrick. I Bury the Living was released in July of 1958 by United Artists and was generally well-received. Oh, that's good. In 1981, Stephen King named it one of his favorite films, except for the ending, which he roundly criticized. This seems to be the common critical reaction to the picture. Most elements, like the music, the cinematography, set design, performances, all get a lot of praise, except the ending, which is generally considered to ruin the movie. Oh no. Do you think this is going to be like a Beast with Five Fingers situation? I don't know. We will find out. Today, it is available on Blu-ray from Scream Factory, and we will be watching it on Tubi. Ah. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss I Bury the Living from 1958, directed by Albert Band. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching I Bury the Living from 1958, directed by Albert Band. Sarah, what did you think of the movie? This was like a Twilight Zone episode gone off the rails. Yeah, definitely agree on the Twilight Zone episode feel, for sure. But I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's good. Like with many... Movies with Gerald Freed providing the score. Um, His score definitely enhances the experience. But I think um, the visuals and like film techniques are definitely working overtime to really make you feel this movie. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of really cool stuff being done here. Um, Yeah, this movie's fucking rad, uh, except for the ending, which is confusing, disappointing and frustratingly noncommittal. Yes, but it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Hmm, interesting. But I think we're putting the cart before the horse. Yes. Or at least the analysis before the plot synopsis. (laughs) So the film follows Robert Kraft, who is president of Kraft Department Stores, a family-run company um, which his uncle George credits the success of to their community work. And this community work is like leading committees that help run um, parts of the town, such as the cemetery committee. So every year, the people who are on the cemetery committee take turns like running the cemetery itself, um, going to the office, signing off on the checks, that sort of thing. And it's Robert's turn. Now He, as he says, is up to his ears and work and tries to get out of it. But his uncle George sits him down and is like, no, This kind of work is why we are successful. You can't turn this down. So Robert goes and he meets the cemetery caretaker named McKee, Andy McKee, who is Scottish. Um, He's been 40 years on the job. And so Robert's like, hey, maybe think about retirement. You know, we'll give you a full pension. It'll be a great time. Um, So start thinking who you might want to replace you. Um, and McKee introduces Robert to the map. Um, now, this map is of the entire cemetery. Um, it shows all of the plots. And there's these pins in the map that um, have a white top for 
you know, someone has paid and purchased this plot, but they are still living, and a black-topped pin for someone who has passed and is currently occupying that plot. During his orientation, I guess you could say, um, a newlywed couple stopped by. They are from a prominent family of the town. The reason they are stopping by is to, as part of um, the kid's inheritance, uh, he once he's married, he has to purchase the plots for him and his bride, um, and then he'll get access to the full inheritance. So, you know, they just got married, let's buy the plots, they go off. And we see that Robert sticks two black pins into those plots by mistake. And he thinks nothing of it until the next day, the newlyweds turn up dead from a car accident. And he's like, oh, that's really weird. I feel, did I do that? No. Did I do that? <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god, Ben. Um, I'm trying to set a tone here. Sure. Now, Robert has a fiancé. Her name is Anne. Um, she's very nice, very loving, and, um, you know, she comes all the way down to the cemetery office because uh, Robert accidentally stood her up for lunch, and she kind of jokes that, like, yeah, I was going to head home, but then in my thoughts I heard and saw you, Robert, and saying, come to me, and she kind of plays this off as, like, a joke. Um, he was telepathically sexting her. Yes, that that is the implication. <laughs> now, Robert... As the movie goes on, like, he confides to a friend of his named Jess Jessup, which is, like, okay, writer of this screenplay. I just like it because even though I don't think anyone ever, like, says the name like this, he's, like, a newspaper reporter, right? So it's, like, Jess Jessup, star reporter. <laughs> like... <laughs> So he confides to his friend Jess that um, things like that seem to happen frequently. Um, like I'll be thinking of someone and then they'll call me saying that they were thinking of me at that same time. And then Robert also mentions having many cases of deja vu. Now, um, I'm going to put a pin in that. I'll come oh, back to that. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it's not uh, particularly colored any certain way. So Robert's getting ready to take Anne out for dinner and he like stretches and mistakenly puts a black pin on um, another plot. Now this plot is owned by uh, William Isham and um, after we see that the black pin is put on, we cut to Isham that night as you know, he's working late, he, he's like making toys, whatever, and the camera moves in when suddenly, ugh! He has a heart attack and dies. Now, Robert is like shaken because, you know, the two people at first, that could have been a coincidence. Now, Isham, ugh, did I have something to do with it? Um, and Jess is like, no, trust me, this is all just coincidence. Isham was like over 70. Like, it's fine. He died of a heart attack. The newlyweds from a car accident, like you couldn't have done any of this. Robert also confides all of this, like his theory that maybe I'm killing these people somehow, um, to his uncle George. And he basically says, like, I need to like not be working at the cemetery because I'm killing people by accident. And Uncle George is like, no, okay, like let's test this. Let's not just assume. Um, let's put a black pin on um the previous caretaker. And if he dies, then I'll get you out of this post. And it's worth saying that like George also brings up like when I was chairman, I put in the wrong color pin by accident, like all the time. Yeah. And like nothing ever happened to anybody. Yeah. And yeah. like this map is quite old. There are many parts of it where you see like pins have gone in, pins have gone out. Like, yeah. So George is like pretty skeptical, but they go and they put uh, the black pin on the previous caretaker. And the next day, He's found dead. But now Robert feels like he's in too deep to lose this post. Um, George is like, hey, I think you might be under a lot of stress. Why don't you and Anne go on like a little vacation to Miami? Take your mind off of this and in a week you'll be fine. And he's like, no. And Anne's like, well, you know, I was just like joking and lying about like, having you telepathically sexed me like it's fine and robert is like no get away from me Anne. 
I'm, I'm focused on this. And basically tells her off. As part of trying to get all of this resolved, Robert actually brings in the police. And this is how we meet um, Lieutenant Claiborne, um, who I'm sure I'm going to accidentally say his name is Claymore. Uh, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, and Lieutenant Claiborne is like, you know, he does his due diligence in the sense of like double checking how these people died. And he's like, no, it was all natural causes. Um, like I said, the newlyweds was a car accident. Isham was, I think they say a brain aneurysm and the previous caretaker was a heart attack. Like yeah. there's no way you could have had anything to do with these. And, you know, whenever um, someone dies, like, outside of a hospital or hospice setting, um, like, it's a homicide case until proven, like, otherwise, basically, right? Like, when the medical examiner says, hey, it's this, then it's no longer a case. And when they say, hey, it's a murder, then it's a murder, right? So, like, yeah, he would know that these are all natural deaths because they would have already checked into it. But Robert isn't convinced. He, he's still pretty sure that he's causing this. Now, the committee, the cemetery committee, is like, listen, dude, we're going to prove to you once and for all that this is nothing. So you're going to go put black pins on the three of us. Uh, I forget their names, but Uncle George is one of them. And Robert's like, no, I couldn't possibly. And they're like, well, you've been outvoted because hmm. the three of us have voted to, for you to have to do this. Yeah, because like the idea being if these are just coincidences, like it would be wild if like three people all died in the same night and it was coincidentally the same people. Like if they all die, this is definitely a thing. Yes. But that night, Robert is anxiously pacing the floor of the cemetery office and he calls in to check on one of the men. He's died. So he calls homicide and gets through and gets them to check the second individual. He's dead. So he's like, okay, well, you guys got to go check on my Uncle George. And he can't be found until Uncle George walks into the cemetery office. And he's like, really, it's, it's just pins. And he's kind of like flabbergasted. But there's a lot of tension going on mm -hmm. uh, to the point where Robert has his hand on a gun that's in the drawer and it, it's, like, supposed to be unclear, I think, why George is here. Mm -hmm. So this had me going, like, oh, George was killing them and trying to put it on Robert because he's trying to kill off the competition or something. But George is, like, no, if it's just pins, if I swap out a white pin on my plot, I should be able to live then. And he leaves and he starts driving away. The next morning, he's found in his car down the driveway dead so lieutenant claiborne is like okay i don't have a theory for this but clearly yes something is going on with this map and he um basically puts forward to robert um and mckee and jess are also here as witnesses he tricks robert into putting a pin on a man whose name i believe was middle um who is in paris and basically says, like, if he dies, he's in Paris. So there's no way there's, like, a person doing this. Yeah. And it would be more than coincidence. Because it, it is brought up at one point, the idea that, like, someone might be going out and doing this, like, on purpose kind of to Robert to, like, make Robert go crazy or something like that mm -hmm. um like it's asked like do you have any enemies who might be going around killing these people making you think it's you so yeah if it's like if somebody drops dead in paris then like this is not a local problem and lieutenant claiborne also is like you know there are things that science has documented like voodoo dolls but the power of someone's mind can make things happen and so maybe, you know, if Middle drops dead, maybe it's your mind making them die. Yeah, because there's like a um, an ambiguity through the movie about whether it's like the map is cursed and like the map decides who lives and dies or whether it has to do specifically with Robert and like maybe he's like a 
you know, like a telepath with mind powers and stuff. Yeah. Hence the like deja vu thing and the thing with Anne. Yeah. The telepathic sexting. Yeah. Yeah. So that night again, Rob is alone in the cemetery office and he's kind of going through it. He has a lot of guilt about the people who he believes he has killed already. Um, And it's also like, super fucking cold here at night and the furnace never seems to work at night. So he's like losing his mind a little bit and his mind is only on the map. And what's fun is like during this part, the map keeps getting bigger every time that it's shown uh, on screen. Yeah. Every time he like looks at the map, it's bigger on the wall until like eventually the wall. Yeah. By the end of the movie, it is the wall. Yeah. Um, and he's like, oh, I killed them. I killed them with these black pins. But maybe with the white pins, I can bring them back. So he goes to the map and he switches out and puts the white pins in. And um, because it's freezing, he's also starting to burn parts of like his chair and stuff to try to keep warm at night. It's worth saying like there's a heater in here. He just can never get it yeah, the to furnace. work. Yeah, yeah, like McKee can get it to work just fine mckee also says like during the day it works just fine but i can't control what happens at night right spooky yeah um anyways so robert passes out and when he awakes (laughs) from smoke inhalation yeah when he awakes the whole room is filled with smoke so he like finds his way out because he's like barricaded the doors because he's paranoid And as he's, like, coughing up a storm outside, he notices that the newlyweds' graves have been dug up. He's like, does does that mean they're alive? And so he goes running through the cemetery, looking at the other plots of his other victims. And yes, they have all been dug up as well. So he runs back to the cemetery office, and he grabs the gun, and he's basically about to shoot himself in the head when... Ring, ring, the phone rings, and we hear on the line that it's Mrs. Middle, the wife of the man in Paris, saying, like, he's dead. So he hangs up. And as we're hearing that conversation, we see McKee coming in from the background, covered in dirt. And he's, like, basically telling Robert, like, it was I who killed all of them um, and dug up the, the graves um, because you were going to retire me. And Robert's like, yeah, but you were getting like a full pension. And McKee's like, no, I want to work until I die, until it's my time. Yeah, he's Scottish, but he's definitely Protestant. <laughs> and he, he explains like, yeah, I killed all of them. And Robert's like, but middle, that was his wife. He's dead. And McKee starts going like, but then is it the map? Is it the map? And he starts kind of going insane. Yeah. And Robert's like, maybe you did kill them, but maybe it was still my telepathy. Like me thinking of these people dying is what made you kill them. Yeah. And so McKee runs to the map and um, is like panicking. And just as police suddenly break into the office, McKee slumps down the wall dead and the police go over they check that he's dead and they tell robert like don't worry middle's alive it was all a ruse to try to draw mckee out um because we had suspected he had been killing all of them um and that actually like everyone died of fright um that's why we didn't see like strangle marks on anyone's neck or anything like that um so it's all fine And Robert and Anne are reunited. The end. So I want to read you Stephen King's review of this movie. Okay. Once upon a time, there was a cemetery caretaker who discovered that if he put black pins into the vacant plots on his cemetery map, the people who owned those plots would die. But when he took out the black pins and put in white pins, do you know what happened? The movie turned into a big pile of shit. Wasn't (laughs) that funny? So do we want to start with the ending then? Yeah, so... So when you said that the ending, that everyone who watched this movie kind of pointed to the ending as like dropping the ball, I was expecting it to be along a similar fashion as Beast with Five Fingers, which just has like this whole like 
comedic bit for the last five minutes. Although it is similar-ish in the sense of like, it's all a, a ruse. Yeah, I guess I was worried that it was going to end up being all a dream mm, because sure. he kept having problems with the gas furnace mm-hmm. um, and he kept like it was explicitly shown how he's like closing all of the shutters and locking himself in right. with a furnace that doesn't seem to be working. I thought it was going to be some kind of gas leak sure. and he was actually just like high on fumes. Right. Yeah. So it's a little better than that. Yeah. So maybe that's why I'm like, you know, this wasn't that bad. So my problem with the ending is it doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. on a bunch of different levels. Definitely muddled. And it doesn't like connect up with the first part of the movie and it's confusing and it seems to like be really noncommittal about what it's trying to say. Um, The ending should have been, as far as I'm concerned, like he puts the white pins in and the dead rise up from their grave and then they come and confront him like for his role in their deaths and like lay a big like guilt trip on him like they're, you know, the ghosts in like a Christmas carol or something. (laughs) And um, it definitely seems like that's the direction the movie's going. Right. Like when he puts the white pins in, we start to see like the earth like coming apart by the graves and like headstones falling over and things yeah. as if like they're about to rise. Um, yeah. And they should have like confronted him about his role in their deaths. And then he should have like gone mad from seeing these dead people talking to him and like the guilt and stuff. And then like the next morning he should have been like found catatonic by Claiborne and Jessup and like, Oh, the graves are empty, but like, where did the people in them go? And like, you know, he's mad and he's not talking and he's catatonic. And will we ever know the truth like that? That should have been the ending. I will say that um, Theodore Bickle, who plays Andy with a really great Scots accent, by the way, um, gives a good enough performance that you can. It is a surprise when he comes out, but you can also see where it was coming from. Yeah. And like he gives a good enough performance that he kind of starts to sell you yes. on it. But, like, for this idea that Andy was the one killing everyone and that the cops wanted to, like, draw him out to work, like, the idea is, like, that he confronted these people and they died of fright? Yeah. Like, why would the caretaker, like, why would the the guy from the cemetery showing up make people die of fright? Also, the newlywed couples were in a car and got in a car accident. And like, well, I think he got the idea after they died. Oh, sure. Okay, that that sort of makes a little bit of sense. But still, it also means that Andy needed to be like checking on the map to see like what pins dude had fucked up on like regularly to the point where like he's also the one who dug up all the graves. That's why he's covered in dirt at the end, which means like he had to go in while Buddy was already sealed up with the smoke and everything check those pins and then seal the place back up behind him, which wasn't just like a case of the door and the windows being closed. Like Robert like barricaded the door with the desk and stuff. Like how do you barricade a door behind you as you leave again? Like his level of surveillance of Robert like doesn't make sense. Um, The idea that like he would kill all these people because like, I, I understand the idea that he's like upset about, Retiring. retiring like forcibly retiring and like having to like lose this job because like there isn't like a desperation to him in the rest of the movie and he takes the news like quite reasonably when he's initially told but you do get the sense that like he knows this place like the back of his hand like this is his place like this is his whole life like what is he gonna do without this yeah um so that motivation kind of makes sense but then it's like why kill these specific people how does that help you and it's like well he's trying to make robert go crazy as revenge but like how does that help him it's a very limited scope of a plan because it seemed limited to just driving robert insane right when it's clear that that retirement decision and he makes it clear that that retirement decision came from the committee so like there's no way for mckee to have been able to maneuver the committee into being like yeah just like black pin us right and like you know 
why not just your grudges against the committee? Like, why not just go kill them? Yeah. Like you don't like if you're already set on killing them anyways, connecting it up with this like weird black pin, white pin thing is like, it seems like just not necessary. The other thing is, is Robert's very clear that like, we really appreciate the amount of service you've done. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to give you that full pension. Yeah. If they're being that generous, I'm sure that you could have been like, Actually, can I just keep this job? Yeah. I don't I, want to retire. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that they would have been fine. Yeah. Given that they were willing to keep paying him until the end of his life anyways. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird and it doesn't make sense. Uh, Bickle sells it in his performance at the Absolutely. end, but like on a scripting level, it doesn't make sense. And then like the idea that the cops have just been like letting Bickle go around and kill people and they need to yeah, like catch him or something like this isn't an episode of Perry Mason. They don't need him to like confess on the record in order to go in and arrest him. And because like the deaths have no evidence, right? Mm-hmm. Like the cops are like, Oh yeah, there's not a mark on them, etc." The way that it said that the cops like caught on to McKee is because they've been like following him and seeing him leaving the murder scenes and stuff. And it's like, well, that's all you need. Yeah. That's all you need. You could have arrested him right then and there. Why did they have to do the thing with middle? Because like, that's not for McKee's sake. He doesn't overhear that phone call. That's for Robert's sake. So why is it in the comp's best interest to make Robert go crazy? And yeah. like, it's to draw Andy out to Robert, I guess, so that Andy can be like, ha ha ha. It was me all along or whatever. But like the only effect that the middle thing has is that when Robert tells it to Andy, it makes Andy go crazy and die. And it's like, is that was, that was your plan? The police? Like, <laughs> like, wait, who's, who's gaslighting who into going crazy and dying and why? Right. Absolutely. It really doesn't make sense. And then what's wild is even after we get all that and the cops are like, yeah, so it was Andy all along. You're fine. Um, the movie still does like a couple of things towards the end that are like, or maybe it was Robert's mind control. Yeah, or maybe with the it, idea that Robert controlled McKee into going and killing. Right. And then like, and he still seems kind of really like weird and shooken up at the end. And then like the way that the movie focuses on the map at the end and shows it like fall down from the wall. It's like as if the movie is saying, or maybe it was the map the whole time. And <laughs> it's like, guys, like commit to the bit if you're going to do it. It's like they, they had a really good idea. And for whatever reason, they didn't want to commit to like people coming back to life for some reason. And so they decide they need like a twist, mm-hmm. like a, a twist to reveal the thing. And they kind of realized that like, oh, it's all been a scam is like a shitty twist. So then they tried to like twist the twist and it, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And it's weird that they would shy away from people coming back from the dead because they're willing to show Robert practically ready to pull the trigger. Like he is about to pull the trigger. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is like some sort of weird 1958 reticence about like, Oh, the only person who can bring people back from the dead is Jesus. So it would be sacrilege to show Bob (laughs) doing it. Um, which like is a thing that I know has like been brought up by censors as, um, like an objection to plot elements in movies before. But then they could have made the gas leak be a thing and have it be a hallucination. Yeah. It's really weird. Um, And it just kind of squanders like, it's not a bad ending in the sense that like the ending itself is still like a horror movie ending. And it's still like, you know, in the same kind of tone as the rest of the movie. It's not like beast with, five fingers where suddenly it's like a bunch of goofy nonsense and like Kirk and Spock laugh on the bridge of the enterprise freeze frame. But like it does kind of squander like what they had going up to that point. Yeah. This movie does a really good job of building tension. Mm -hmm. Um, They use all the tools at their hands to do that, whether that's the cinematic techniques um, or the music some of the cinematic techniques that we see to show the tension as well as to convey Robert's madness is um, the map getting larger. Um, there's some neat lighting. Yeah. Both with like it being backlit, but even when it's just 
a map. Um, I think either the white pins are done in a way that they light up or there's a light just above yeah. and the white pins are catching it so they look like they're glowing in a neat way. Yeah, it's it's lit from above in just that way. There's also a lot of like, they do not shy away from darkness. No. And they even use that to their advantage when it comes to matting and having like this little bit of like the light that you do see on screen kind of like go off into the distance i don't know how to explain that there's like a lot of really good use of like black and white here yeah basically a lot of use of like silhouette a lot of very like stylish um black and white cinematography with shadows uh the cinematographer is frederick gately who was basically just like a tv guy he i think is taking the opportunity just to like kind of stretch his muscles and show off i think sure with presumably like a slightly higher budget oh, and yeah. a little bit more time oh yeah for sure um yeah so they do this like thing that if you've seen the movies of ari aster like hereditary or midsommar he does this thing where like he'll take the scene and show it like way zoomed out and with all black around it Basically, this movie does that a few times where it'll zoom out from Robert, like slumped over his desk or something. And instead of zooming out and showing like, oh, here's the rest of the room around him. And oh, here's the building he's in. And oh, here's like the street that that building's on or whatever. Instead, as it zooms out, there's just like a black void around him uh, until he like becomes a little speck and we transition to the next scene. It's a really cool little technique. Um, the sound design works really well mm -hmm. um there are a few times where like um both robert and mckee um are hearing the sound of like when someone's chiseling a tombstone yeah although that was another thing about the ending that didn't make sense because like the motif of like robert hearing the sound of someone chiseling a name into a tombstone is used at one point to represent robert's um like deja, deja vu. vu and this idea that like he has this psychic connection to things and at the end of the movie, we hear it again, but it's McKee hearing it. And he keeps being like, do you hear that? And it's meant to like communicate to us that he's going mad. But why is it the same thing that Robert hears, right? Like it, again, it's a little muddled, but I do agree that it's really cool. Um, the movie has some great editing from Frank Sullivan, who is also mostly a TV guy. He did edit The Undead. Oh. Yeah. And of course, the music from Gerald Freed is superb. Yeah, the way that he has some music that builds tension before like crescendoing sounds very similar to some of the music on um, Night on Bald Mountain. Yes, um, additionally, in the sort of more like, oh, Robert, I love you, and Robert being like, yeah, and I love you too kind of scenes, um, he's using some music that's riffing off of a section from um, the Nutcracker Suite, which I don't know what that section is actually called. I think it's called like the harem or something like that. I only know it as the section from Fantasia with like the shy and oddly sexual goldfish. Sure. <laughs> Everyone will know which part you mean. Um, sexual awakening for many a kid. Um, so Gerald Freed definitely saw Fantasia then. <laughs> I, I mean, or he just knows of the famous classical music, the Nutcracker Suite. But I mean, like they suite. were both both Nutcracker Suite and Night on Bald Mountain. Sure, were in Fantasia, sure, man. sure, sure. Um, I will say that this movie. It doesn't like undercut its tension, but it does drag it out just a little bit too much mm. a couple of times. Um, part of that is probably because it's like, what, like 70 minutes long? Yeah, it's like 76 or something. And so they do need to drag some things out narratively. But like the, the fact that like after the previous caretaker dies, that then the committee's like, well, then black pin us. Yeah, I think so. My thing watching the whole movie was that like continuing to black pin people to prove whether or not this was real is a terrible idea yeah. because if it's not real and you die of 
a coincidental death, then Robert and everybody else is just going to keep black pinning other people until they like prove it wrong. Yeah. And if it is real, then you die. Like if I was trying to convince Robert that like, no, you don't have psychic powers. The map isn't cursed, whatever. The first thing I would have said is put a white pin in the plot of someone who you think you've killed. Yeah. That's the first thing I would have done. And then when nobody came back to life, I would have been like, see? Yeah. But also, okay, here's two things with that. One, if you're going to white pin someone, dig them out of the ground. If you bring them back to life, then they're stuck in the ground and they're going to die anyways. Well, like that, there, there are these things that I was thinking of when you, he white pins all these people. And I'm like, so they're going to be brought back to life six feet underground. Thanks. I mean, I just assumed that undead people have like the zombie ability to crawl out of their own grave. I just assumed that because I the only context I have is movies. <laughs> sure, sure. Where that just always seems to be really simple to do. It's actually it's quite not. difficult. No. Yeah. Second, mm. he could also just like ask McKee to handle the pins. Right. Like there's no reason why he has to be the one to handle yeah, the pins. It's not really even implied that he should be. He just kind of like does it for fun the first time to be like, aha, yeah, I'll put the pins in, McKee. And then when it's like fucked up, it's like, oh, that's weird. And then like when he does it for uh, uh, Isham, it's like an accidental thing. Like he like yawns and like has a pin in his hand. He accidentally pokes it in. And basically what happens is like Isham had a white pin in. He puts a black pin in and then he realizes he's put a pin in, looks over and takes the white pin out. Like, cause it's like, oh, which one is the one that doesn't belong? You know, and he just kind of guesses and then Isham dies. And so, you know, and then after that, everything that happens after that is like a, like, let's test the board kind yeah. of thing. Right. And it's like, just, just don't pin. Just, yeah. Just stop yeah. doing it. Especially if like you think it's your power. Yeah. Get McKee to do it. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, that's a little weird for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, you buy it throughout that section of the movie because like the movie's doing a good job of like keeping tension and you want to see where this goes but it's definitely there is certainly a kind of horror movie where the characters need to be invested in like well let's let's see where this goes let's let's follow this to its logical conclusion in order for like the plot to work because otherwise you would just, just stop doing it man mm -hmm. right like just leave right go to Miami dude <laughs> Um, so I want to come back to deja vu. Mm. So, um, they don't really explain much about it in the movie, but it's just like the feeling that you've been here before, or you know, what's going to happen next that like you've had a premonition of some kind. Have you ever had deja vu? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think everybody has it. Okay. Yeah. I think it's a universal human experience. Yeah. Do you believe in it though? I don't know what you mean by believe in it. Do you believe that like when you get the feeling of like, I think I've experienced this before or I know what's going to happen that like you truly premonitioned it? Mm. So if, okay. So I believe that like the deja vu phenomena is a real phenomena in the sense that you get this eerie feeling that you've done something before. Everyone has that. I've certainly had it. Um, as to whether it's like psychic powers, um, what I will say is that if so, it's not helpful <laughs> because like I'll get this feeling like I've been in this situation before. The reason why you don't just chalk it up to like, um, yeah, it's a memory. Like I've been in this situation recording this podcast with you before is because you'll think like I've said those exact words in that exact way, in this exact chair, in this exact room, at this exact time of day. And you realize like you can't possibly have been in this situation before, but you're feeling it. That's the thing that makes it eerie, right? For me, that never, that feeling never comes like soon enough to be useful. And I'm always thinking like, well, when did I think about this last? Like, cause the feeling will come to me as if like you've thought about this in the past and it's like well when did that happen and it's always really vague like when i felt or experienced this thing before and it's always in a hindsight thing it's always like the thing happens and then you're like oh yeah and so it's like not helpful right like it's like if you could foresee 
like, I don't know, that your like best friend was going to die in a car accident. Like if you foresaw that in a dream or something and then your best friend does die in a car accident and you're like, oh, I foresaw this in a dream. But like you don't realize that till after the car crash, like it's not a useful psychic power. And so if it's not like useful, it may as well like not really be worth bothering with basically so my take on deja vu is it's you know i don't believe in telepathy or psychic powers or premonitions or any of that stuff but if that is what it is it's not useful enough for me to care (laughs) okay it's like saying that like we're all we all have the power to travel through time at a rate of one second per second you know it's like yeah we can all travel through time but it's not in a way that's useful so (laughs) okay Yeah, I have deja vu frequently, and um, it's to the point where often I'll be able to, like, realize I'm in the moment as it's happening. Mm. Um, Like, for example, there's this one really good example of um, I was experiencing it while having a conversation, and then I turned and I was like, there's going to be a red car that drives by and a red car drove by. And mm. then I was going to be like, and then I said, um, then a dog is going to bark and chase a cat over this way. And then that happened. Mm. Um, so it's definitely not like with enough time to warn the friend before they get right. into the car, but it's definitely like in the moment. Mm. And there have been um, maybe two times in the whole time that I've experienced deja vu that I have been in a conversation and then I'll be like, I'm experiencing deja vu. I said this and they got real upset and I'll say something different. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just get like a weird tingly feeling that's like, Hey, you've been here before. And I'm like, okay, if so, that's not useful. <laughs> Um, Gotta learn to trust your your brain a little bit more. uh, Yeah, man. No, I have mental illness, so no, I'm not going to trust my (laughs) brain. Thank you very much. My brain plays tricks on me and lies to me constantly. Okay, well, that's deja vu on Scream Scene. Right. Um, Anything else you want to say about this movie? Uh, Yeah, I think that um, Albert Band is a great director and, like, really surprised the hell out of me. Like, to come from a background where it's like, yeah, this is his second movie, and his first movie was, like, a B-movie indie western, and this is a B-movie indie horror, and it's like, yeah, okay, I've seen plenty of directors with this exact background a million times now, and I kind of know what to expect, a sort of, like, either, like, workmanlike competency, if you're Roger Corman, or, like, complete failure to know how to make a movie if you're anyone else basically and instead albert band is like no i have technique motherfucker and yeah there's some moments in the movie where the suspense is drawn out too long like andy going crazy takes too long but i don't super mind it because the idea of him going crazy is being like communicated to us through like wild like cinematic technique stuff like weird camera angles and like superimpositions and like dissolves and like crazy lighting and stuff and it's too much but also like i haven't seen anyone fucking try to be cool in a horror movie and do weird cinematic stuff in so long yeah that like i'm fine with it it's like this is fine like albert band is like hey guys remember that you can do cool things with cinema I think band came to this and was like, this is what I want. How do I get there? And Mm. relied on people who are far more experienced, such as the cinematographer to achieve those things. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying he doesn't have any talent. I'm saying like he doesn't have these techniques ingrained in him through 30 years of experience. He's able to see where the boundaries are and push past them. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, that's his job as a director yeah like the job of a director is to communicate like this is the vision for the movie achieve that for me please (laughs) it's it's like not supposed to be a director dictating to the cinematographer like we're gonna do this shot and then this shot and you're gonna light it this way and then this way like the director needs to be saying like i want a sequence like this that will communicate that that has this kind of style achieve that for me. And the cinematographer will go, well, here are my ideas. And then you collaborate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the fact that 
band has a couple of great actors here mm-hmm. in Theodore Bickle and Richard Boone. Yeah. Is a boon to <laughs> his success here. But there are moments where I feel like he's given direction because of like how long the tension is held. Like I feel like he would have had to have stepped in to guide his actors in some sort of way to make that tension feel differently as it's being held yeah yeah absolutely like that's why i say like i think he does a great job directing this movie uh richard boone gives a great performance for like robert gradually going from like huh that's weird and eerie to about to kill himself like yeah this is a great movie i think the only reason this is not remembered as like an absolute classic of the era is because of the like whiffed ending and it's not even like as we've said not even that bad it's not totally incompetent it's just like you whiffed it and everyone can tell it's it's the fact that i think everyone watching this movie goes nah that should have been better it's that feeling of something like not living up to what the rest has been. It's like watching a long running TV shows series finale in the context of a single movie where you're like, this was really good. And that finale was okay, I suppose, but you know, (laughs) so let's move on to ranking. Okay, for sure. So Sarah, I wasn't really sure where to start looking on the list because like, I don't feel like we have a lot of, we don't have like a section of the list. That's like, these are good movies with bad endings. I like, it's not something that was really like coming to mind. So I just tried to like look around the list and find a spot to start that like felt right. And that was macabre at number 22. Uh, That was of course the first William Castle movie. And similar to this one, it has like a long premise that leads you through the movie um involves scaring people to death right and then like ends with a twist right um so i thought this might be better than macabre even though the twist isn't handled as well as in macabre because of like the wild cinematic techniques in this movie um so i looked sort of above macabre where we have night of the demon which is a pretty dope movie and dracula which is a pretty dope movie and i'm thinking to myself like okay at what point does having kind of a whiffed ending ruin I Bury the Living? And, you know, compared to Night of the Demon, there's a lot of disagreement in that movie about, like, should they have shown the demon at the end? And Dracula's ending is very, like, underwhelming in that, like, Dracula gets staked off camera and then the movie just kind of stops. But Bride of Frankenstein has a dope ending that's totally, like, on theme for what it's about. So I made my ceiling um, Bride of Frankenstein. So the highest I'd put this movie is 20. Looking down from Macabre, things got difficult because, you know, if this is a movie where it's like, hey, this is a really cool movie with a whiffed ending, that's kind of hard to compare to a lot of other things. And, you know, so I started looking down sort of with the same idea in mind of like, at what point does having a whiffed ending like not ruin I Bury the Living next to a different film? And I made my way all the way down to number 47. Uh, which is How to Make a Monster. And below that is Queen of Spades, and above that is House of Wax. And even with a kind of whiffed ending, I think this is a superior horror movie to How to Make a Monster, which is like a fine enough movie and has some neat stuff going on, but has an ending that's very kind of predictable, um, and I don't think does enough cinematically to really achieve the highs that this movie does. Well, it relies on the color. Yeah. So 20 to 47 is my range. So just because we've been talking about Beast with Five Fingers throughout mm. this podcast, I just want to put it out there that it's currently ranked at number 104. Okay. Um, That's sort of lower than I thought it was. But, like, <laughs> there's mean, a lot of movies. It got bumped down because yeah. of like things going up above it. Yeah, there's a lot of movies on the list these days. Yeah. Um, I would consider I Bury the Living to be better than Beast with Five Fingers. Yeah, for sure. So I started looking up. The other movie that jogged my memory was also Macabre, Mm. um, which you said is at 22. When I was looking above Macabre, I also saw Bread of Frankenstein. And then I was also thinking about, like, the fact that someone's, like, driven 
to insanity, how that is portrayed. And I thought of La Diabolique at mm-hmm. 17. Yeah, that's a good point. And in that episode on La Diabolique, we debated about whether it was more thriller or horror because it waffles a bit about how it wants to handle driving someone insane. Right. Um, I Bury the Living does not waffle on at least that part, right? Right. It just suddenly introduces that as an idea in the last five minutes. But other than that, it's it doesn't waffle on the technique. So I made Le Diabolique my ceiling, so slotting I Buried the Living into the new 17. And then looking down, it was very difficult. Um, I think we, we both are acknowledging that it's, it's difficult. Um, my eyes went to um, things like Fiend Without a Face at 28, which is like no other way to describe it besides wild Mm. very focused knows what it's doing um so that could be better or it could be worse like it it depends how you like your horror but my eyes settled at night of the hunter at 35 Mm. because they were both using visual techniques to tell their story and what i kind of noticed is i buried the living feels like it's pushing forward Mm. Night of the Hunter is doing callbacks right. to older styles. Yes. Um, so I felt like I Bury the Living should go above Night of the Hunter. Okay. So my range is 17 to 35. So that sort of makes like the overlap 20 to 35. So looking sort of in there, uh, we have stuff like Night of the Demon, Murders in the Zoo, uh, Fairman Maria, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, we also have stuff like Cabinet of Caligari and Nosferatu, and we have stuff like Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was looking around at these movies, like I was thinking like, yeah, this is probably better than X the Unknown, but then I would notice like Cabinet of Caligari, and I'd be like, but it's not better than Cabinet of Caligari. You can actually trace stuff from Caligari to this film. For sure. With the way that it's portraying madness, which yeah, is absolutely. really neat. Yeah, like... I think the the cabinet of Caligari sort of is like the origin point of the like, I'm going to purposely drive you insane thing in at least horror movies um, as like a plot point, plot point. It probably goes back to like Greek tragedy or some shit, but absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of reluctant to put this above stuff like a page of madness, which is at 33, but. I could put this above Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is a lot of fun, but that's it. Yeah, I think um, that makes sense given the cultural impact of Caligari, Nosferatu, even like X the Unknown, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, So yeah, I'm happy with that. Okay. Yeah, like ultimately this is a good movie, but it's like a forgotten gem kind of thing rather than you know one of the big names right and it's almost like not necessarily forgotten but like purposefully put back on the shelf because it whiffs the ending yeah for sure so entering the list at the new number 34 then pretty good showing i must say yeah is i bury the living directed by albert band from 1958 If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to appeal this or any other ranking, please drop us a line through Tumblr's Ask Box. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or reach out on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed, which seems to be the way most of you are doing this, judging by the metrics. But again, contact us to tell us how did you find us. Exactly. Uh, Another way that you can help us out is by spreading the word to others. Uh, Share the show on social media. Talk to people about it in your carpool. Um, Stream it to your friends while you're playing a game over Discord and really like just make sure that they can't focus on their own game so that you can beat them in that game because (laughs) they're just focused on listening to a scream scene episode you've already heard whatever just spread the show 
If you have the means, we would also like to encourage you to take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Your patronage helps us pay our hosting fees, helps us sort of put the time into all of the various things that we do, which includes our regular weekly episodes. It includes weekly bonus audio that goes up on Mondays, which is accessible for patrons of $5 a month or above. It includes like monthly writing, uh, which as of late has been like Sarah doing her Gothic retrospective series or little reviews and things. She just did a review of the comic book Stillwater. Those are available for people at the $10 a month level. And because we have so many of you helping us out, thank you. We make over $150 a month U.S., and because of that, we also do monthly horror-adjacent bonus episodes, like the two-hour and 20-minute episode on The Mask of Fu Manchu that just came out. Yeah. So thank you, everyone, who supports us on Patreon. And if you would like to become a patron of the night, you can do it by going to patreon.com slash Podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week, we're going to Japan. Oh. And we are seeing a film from Nobuo Nakagawa, the director of Vampire Moth and Ghost of Kasane Swamp. And this film is called Bore Kaibyo Yashiki, or Black Cat Mansion. Oh my God, I love it already. I thought you might. (laughs) See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.